Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for the NCC podcast. God is doing so many great things in our community, and I trust that he's doing great things in your life as well. And I trust that God is going to speak to you through this message. Okay, so I have a couple books up here, and I just want to tell you about them really quickly. I'm going to read from one of them um, a a little later on. One is called uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Um, This is Alex's favorite book and favorite author, and I don't really know if that's true, but I do know he loves this book because he told me he loves this book. I love this book. My sister sent me this book. She said it changed her life, and I understand why. It, It really is an absolutely incredible read. It's a little thick, but honestly, I think even though it's dense, it's very enjoyable. It's really a wonderful book. I encourage you, if you're interested in um, understanding how transformation happens, this is a great book. The other book I want to really recommend to you is called The Purple Book. Guess what? We give these away. We do. We give them to everyone who wants one. Because if you know, you know, right? This is the most incredible um, discipleship book I have ever seen in my whole life. Um, I did not write it, so this is not self-promotion. But it was written by people who have planted churches literally all over the world. And it's meant to be gone together with one other person or with a very small group. It's not meant to be done in like a group of 30 people. It's meant to be done either on your own or one-on-one. And I really think that even if you started doing this book, and then you found somebody who was a little farther in their journey or who you trust to kind of talk it out with, that would be a great idea. If you don't have somebody like that in your life, talk to us. Um, I'm sure we would be happy to. But if you're looking for a way to dig in in this season, this is an absolutely incredible and free resource that we have. I don't know how many we have, but um, it's an incredible resource. All right. So let's talk about the abundant life. I want to read a quote from an incredible preacher in the 1700s. His name was John Wesley. And he said this when he was approached by a man who came to him in the grip of unbelief. That man said this, all is dark, my thoughts are lost, but I hear that you preach to a great number of people every night and morning. Pray, what would you do with them? Whither would you lead them? So where would you lead them? What religion do you preach and what is it good for? God's not afraid of your questions. And by the way, probably somebody else has already asked them. It was one of the most wonderful things that I ever discovered about Christianity is the more that I dug in, the more questions that I asked, the more I found answers. Now we have to to really ask questions wanting to hear answers. If you ask questions and you're only asking questions to, to, to be difficult in your life, does that make sense? Then no answer will ever satisfy you. But if you truly ask questions, seeking truly to discover, this is what I have found, is that there are beautiful, incredible, wonderful answers because so many brilliant people have agreed with this faith, have found solace in this faith, and have had their lives transformed by this faith in Jesus Christ. This is a faith of many people who were scholars, but it's also the faith of shepherds. That's what's so incredible about Christianity is it's simplest enough that my five-year-old understands, that my three-year-old prays at the dinner table, thank you for my Jesus. But 
It's complex enough that you can study it your whole life and on the last day that you live, find a new truth that is transformative. What a gift we have in God and what a gift we have in this faith. And so he asked all of these questions and this is what Wesley said. He said, you ask, what would I do with them? I would make them virtuous and happy, easy in themselves and useful to others. Where would I lead them to heaven, to God the judge, the lover of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant? What religion do I preach? The religion of love, the law of kindness brought to life by the gospel. What is this good for to make all who receive it enjoy God and themselves? To make them like God, lovers of all, contented in their lives and crying out at their death in calm assurance. O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God who giveth me victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. I start with that because I think it's one of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen crafted in words about what it might be to truly live the abundant life. To make them virtuous and happy, easy in themselves and useful to others. Isn't that what we all want? Isn't that what we're all seeking for? And then I love how he ends at the end, to enjoy God and enjoy themselves. And yet, if you've grown up in a religious environment, you can almost be afraid of that description because it sounds too happy. It sounds too fun. It sounds too something. And, and yet, when we dig into the scriptures, that's exactly the kind of abundant life that God offers to us. I want us to walk through John 10 for a little bit. And this is how it starts. And this is Jesus talking. It says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, talking about the teachers of the law of that day. And by the way, you hear about Pharisees and Sadducees in the Bible. And the Pharisees, you know, get a bad rap, but the Pharisees were at least willing to engage Jesus. The Sadducees had already made up their mind. They wanted nothing to do with him. But the Pharisees were at least willing to engage with Jesus. They were willing to ask questions, and some of their number, like Nicodemus, even came to believe in him. So he's talking to these teachers of the law, these people who are always trying to trap him, but at least are engaging with him. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Now, I don't keep sheep. I don't even keep a dog. Um, I'm not really into animals that much. I had animals growing up. I had every kind of animal you could ever imagine, and they all died, and that made me sad. And when I finally had my own home, I said, I'm not having any animals because I don't want them to make me sad when they die. Now I have children. Do you know what's eventually going to happen, even though I'm trying not to have it happen? You know what's going to happen. 
I'm going to end up with an animal. Pray for me. But anyway, we're talking about sheep here, and he's talking to people who would be very familiar, right, with animal husbandry. They would be very familiar with caring for animals. They would have seen it. Maybe they were actual shepherds themselves or their um, friend was or something, but they would be familiar with it. And so, so this is what he's saying. He's saying anybody who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. He's talking about having the authority from God, not from any other source. And as we keep going, you're going to realize that he's talking about himself. And so he says, hey, if you don't enter through the gate, you're a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And I think this is important for for a lot of reasons, but because he's saying, I have done things the right way. See, when Jesus came, he didn't just come out of nowhere. He came into a context. There was a promise that God had made to the Jewish people that had been going on for a long, long time. And he came as Messiah to fulfill that covenant contract with the Jewish people. And so there was a long list of prophecies. There was a long list of things that he had to do to be able to be the one who fulfilled the contract. And Jesus didn't skip over them. Instead, he fulfilled every single one. And here he's responding not just to that, but he's also responding to their accusations that he's somehow a shady character. Because they keep on saying that he's shady. They keep on saying that he's a problem. Everything that Jesus does, they turn around on him. You know, he's with the people, and he's drinking with them, and he's eating with them, and he's hanging out at the dinner table with them. Jesus loved a party. And they're like, you're a drunkard. And he says, really? The guy who came before me didn't eat anything except like locusts and honey. And you guys said he was crazy. So now I'm just being normal and showing up at people's tables and and making people feel loved and seeing transformation happen through hospitality. And you're calling me a drunkard. I can't win. And he couldn't because they had already decided, right? But he's saying, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not somebody who doesn't have authority. I'm not shady. I have the authority. I have the right to enter the space that I'm in. And that's important as we keep going. So, so three, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Okay, this is important. He's telling us, he's foreshadowing for us because each of us, if we come to Jesus, and I truly believe if you're in this room, if you have stepped towards Jesus in any way in your life, It was because the Holy Spirit called you. That's what the Bible says, right? And and he calls to all of us because it it is literally in the Bible, it says it's not the will of God that any should perish, but all should have eternal life. But we have a choice of whether to respond to that call. But make no mistake, we don't just come up with that idea in our own heads one day. When you show up and you just move towards Jesus, it's because you are responding, whether you know it or not, to him calling your name. Isn't that a beautiful thought? 
that I'm responding to this moment, maybe it's because my life's messed up. Maybe it's because my life's too good and it's kind of feeling empty. I, I don't know. Whatever it was that brings you to that moment with Jesus, it's really because he's called your name. And then it says, verse 4, when he's brought them out, he goes on ahead of him and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now see the order here because it's going to be important later. So first, he calls us to him and then he asks us to follow him. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. This should tell us something important. There are going to be other things in life that are calling our name. There's other identities that are calling our name. There are other things that are enticing us to follow them. But this is the thing. It's not about it being a bad thing. It's about it not being Jesus. Because he's the only one who we should follow. Um, I have uh, a million children and um, have you ever seen what happens when a little kid mistakes your leg for their parent's leg? You ever been standing in the foyer or like somewhere and all of a sudden you're like, somebody just grabbed me. And you look down and there's a little three-year-old and they're like not paying any attention, but they're just like hanging on your leg. But then they see your face and it's not mama. And they're like, ah! you know, they run away. I like that kind of thought because I think that sometimes we, we run after things and then we just feel so bad that we ran after them. But you know what? When you realize that it's not the right thing, just let go and run away. But it's promising us that, that if we will follow his voice, that we won't get caught up trying to follow other things. Let's keep going. So Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them because, of course, he's speaking like on several different layers, right? Therefore, Jesus said again, because they weren't understanding, a little bit more explicitly, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep, okay? This is now a new analogy. So he tried it one way, and now he's trying it again. Hey, I am the gate for the sheep. I'm not just the shepherd, but I'm also the gate. Meaning, I don't just have authority, but I am the source of authority. I don't just have permission to enter the gate. I am the very way that anyone is going to access these people. And he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Remember, many, many, many messiahs had came, come before this. Sometimes we don't understand that, that there were many people who were crucified. There, there were many leaders who, who gathered a following. There were many, but none would ultimately succeed in changing the world the way that Jesus did. And, and those who followed those others, weren't, they didn't find abundant life. They found something that was very temporal. And so he goes to verse 9. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Austin, can you put the, um, the clock back up there? That would help me. Thank you. Because um, I have zero sense of time. Anybody else like that? Like I have zero. We would be here till 1030 
And I'd be like, oh, no. Or we would be done in like 15 minutes. And you'd be like, yeah, but my kids and stuff. So anyway, all right. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. So once again, hear what he's telling us. So once again, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now, look, you cannot have, let's be very clear, you cannot have the abundant life that Jesus promises outside of having Jesus. This is not like a set of principles that you can just follow outside of him and end up with the kind of life that he describes. He's saying Jesus is the only way to salvation. But there's also this secondary analogy that's kind of put in there. Listen, this is so beautiful. He says they'll come in and go out and find pasture. Do you see it? Do you see that, that, that other analogy? He's saying not only am I the source of salvation, okay, not only am I the source of authority, not only am I the gatekeeper, for, the, but I'm also your refuge. I'm your refuge. And I am your source for life. I'm the refuge that you can come to, but I also, I'm going to be the one who's going to lead you beside good waters. You know, you know, there's a context here of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, right? He prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. All of those things, all of those components that David wrote so long ago, Jesus is comparing himself and saying, yeah, I'm that good of a shepherd. I'm a refuge for you. I'm a source for you. I am all of these things for you. And then he says this, and this is important. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. See, in Christianity, we believe that there is a a diametric opposite to God. And it is anything that is not God. We believe that there is a thief. And sometimes we can give, I think, too much credibility to the devil here. The devil is a created being which means he is not God's opposition. He is our opposition. Do you hear me? He's not God's opposition. God has already defeated him. He is our opposition. He is our accuser. He is the one who, do you see what I'm saying? And he and all of the things in life that would distract us from God, all of the isms that would offer some kind of identity apart from him, all of those things, they are not coming to help us. But ultimately, they are trying to steal, kill, and destroy our lives. It's so sad to me. When I see people buy into lies that they think are going to liberate them, they instead destroy them. It's heartbreaking as a pastor to watch it happen, to have a conversation and say, no, God God isn't trying to restrict your life or hurt your life. He wants to give you something, and I promise you this isn't going to end up where you think it's going to end up. But when we become convinced that it's the thief who's on our side, The rest of the conversation doesn't matter because the scripture goes on to say, 
I have come, talking about Jesus, right? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life, fullness. Doesn't that just sound amazing? I mean, to have, to have, to be full of life. Uh, I love this quote. Um, the glory of God is a human being who is fully alive. Saint somebody said that. I was listening to a sermon by Dallas Wildard, and he said, Saint blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, Saint somebody. The glory of God is a human being who is fully alive. Think about this thought for a moment. Eternal life, what, what he's offering. Eternal life. Now, we, we talk here about eternal life being in eternity, right, and abundant life being what we live here. But, but maybe, maybe there's just another way to say it, okay, because there's so many different ways to say this. What if eternal life starts right now, right? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? What, think, this is what I was thinking about earlier today. It was like, man, that has so many different layers to that. But if you thought about your life and you were like, man, I, I want at the end of my life for these things to have happened, but then you throw in the, the wrench of eternal life, how does that change things? Because the end of my life isn't really the end of my life. It's just the part that's here. How does that change the way that I invest in the next generation? How does that change, right, the dreams I dream? How does that change the prayers that I pray? How does that change the way I look at my life? It's a beautiful thing, this eternal life that we are offered. And so he keeps going and he goes, I'm the good shepherd. And now he gets serious. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he's foreshadowing, of course, and defining who he is and who he will be. Because remember, before Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he had laid down his life here on earth. He laid down his right just to build a successful business and be respected in his hometown. He laid down his right to just go along a path and be maybe the best scholar in his area. He laid down his right to not have people ridicule him for telling the truth. He laid down his right to be popular, to be understood by those who were in power. He had already laid down literally his life. And he had laid it all down. And he had lived that way all the way into the end of his life when he gave up his life. Verse 12, the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The things that we can often rely on in our life ultimately are not going to support us. I think that's so incredibly important that we keep in mind. Let's just keep going because I want to get to the end of this. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Do you see this intimacy that Jesus plans for his followers? I don't know about you, but has anybody ever just not felt known? You know what I mean? My mother, when I was um, a very young bride, um, I've been married 18 years now, so, um, but I, I was a very young bride, and, and my mother said this to me. She said, um, most of your life is going to be spent alone in your own head. And I, that was the most depressing thing that I had ever heard anybody say. <laughs> I was like, thank you, you know, like, also, I'll pray for you, because that's just really sad. 18 years in, I get it. I have probably the closest relationship of any of my friends when it comes to a spouse. I mean, we're, we, we really, we don't see people. We see each other. You know what I mean? Like, we're that couple. Like, we find ourselves just, like, escaping our children so that we can have a conversation. We, we, we call it bad parenting. It's just one of those things. You know, you're like, do your kids have screen time? Only when we want to talk, you know? We really love each other. He knows me better than anyone else on the planet. But only Jesus really knows me. Because it would take eternity to really be able to explain every motive of my heart, every story that defined me, every thought, right? You, you can't share everything. But he knows everything. So if he knows everything, then that being understood feeling, that, that being known feeling, that intimacy, it comes from him. And this is the thing, is that when that God-shaped intimacy is met in our lives, then our human intimacy gets so much better. Because I'm no longer expecting another human being to know me the way that God knows me such a beautiful thing. All right, let's keep going. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, obviously, there he is foreshadowing. I'm going to grab my phone because um, the thing in the back is not up, and I want to let you guys out on time. But he's foreshadowing the global church there. So he's telling the, the Jews in a really nice tone, like a really nice tone. He's saying, hey, just so you know, like um, this promise isn't just going to be for you. I know that's going to be hard. It's going to take literally like 10 years even for my closest followers to be able to get that concept. But I'm just going to slide it in right here so that maybe, you know, later on you can remember, oh, yeah, he did mention that to us. And so he says there's going to be this, there's going to be more than just you guys. And then he says this, he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Now look, this is important because Jesus is the only one in our scriptures who lays down his own life, defines his own moment of death by saying, I'm done, right? And then resurrects himself from the dead. 
He, it doesn't happen because, you know, he comes in contact with some old prophet's bones. It doesn't happen because somebody wheels, you know, a stone away and calls him out. It doesn't happen because somebody breathes on him. It doesn't happen because of all of those things. It happens because the spirit of God within Jesus was so strong that it raised him from the dead. And he's saying, hey, look. I want you guys to be clear. I am going to lay down my life. But when I do, don't make the mistake of thinking it was because I was powerless or because I was overcome by this world. Instead, I am laying my life down, but I will take it up again because I'm the one who has the authority to do that. But what's also so beautiful is that this is going to fit into later on when we talk about what it looks like to live the abundant life. Because we've talked about what it is to, you know, okay, so I have to follow Jesus. I come to Jesus, and then I follow Jesus. And who is Jesus? He is this refuge for me. He is this source for me. He is the one who has all of the authority. He is the one who will lay down his life for me. He is the one who truly knows me. He's the one who will never forsake me. So we know who we're following. But once again, what does this Life to the full. If he said he came to give us life to the full, what does it really look like? So Matthew eleven twenty eight says it this way. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is probably one of my favorite scriptures. In fact, somebody gave me a really pretty calligraphy kind of version, lettering version. That's what they call it now. It's a cooler name than calligraphy, but, you know, like lettering version of it. And I have it up in my house. And I love it because there's two parts. And there's two words for rest there. The first one is the word for momentary rest. You know, like if you get a drink of water and you sit down after a really long walk in the heat. Did I mention I did that? I just want full credit for it. Okay. That's what the first word for rest is. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. I see that as that moment of, hey, come to me, where he calls our name, right? And we come to him, and we have this, maybe you came to an altar. Maybe you just kept coming back to church, and somewhere along the way, you realized that you were in. And and then you went and told somebody, and they were like, hey, you you probably need to get baptized. You were like, I'm going to do that. This is great. I don't know what it looked like for you, but it was this moment of coming and realizing how truly weary and burdened you were and having a moment of rest, okay? But then there's this second word for rest. And it has to do with true and continual rest in your mind and soul and heart. Isn't that just a beautiful thing? Isn't that? Don't you want that? Oh, my gosh. I want that. I need that in my life. But notice what the actions are. The first action is just come to me. I'll just give this to you. Doesn't that just look like that free gift? right? Just come to me. No qualifier language except for being weary and burdened. And I'll give it to you. 
But then the second one's interesting. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's this exchange. I come with this burden and I set it down, but then I pick up another burden. And sometimes we miss out. We, we, we find ourselves coming into church and having that deep breath, right? We come into church, we have that drink of water. We come into church or, or we go to a Bible study or we have a moment of prayer and we, we come to Jesus, but, but we can't seem to have that sustained rest for our souls. And I think it's sometimes because we have missed out on a really important part. That it's not just what we lay down, but it's also what we pick up that defines our life. Matthew 10 says it this way, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, Jesus is talking, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Isn't that just such an interesting thought? Lay down your life that you can't hold on to. There's another passage that says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth can't corrupt, right? And thieves can't break in and steal. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. There's so many different ways of saying this in the Bible, but, but it's all talking about, hey, if you try to hold on to this life, it's impossible to hold on to. You cannot be safe enough. And remember one time I was doing a business deal with some people and they kept on trying to create um, insulating uh, rhythms into this deal. They were like, okay, so we're going to do this and then we're going to have a guard stand here and then we're going to do this and we're going to have this truck and we're going to have this verification. And by the end of it, it was like, guys, you can, there's all, you can only be so safe. You can only be so secure. We can find ourselves grasping to the point that we begin choking out the very thing that we were trying to hold on to. Isn't it true in our normal life, too? We can think somehow in reverse that Jesus is here to steal from us, that he's taking our dreams. Maybe somebody told you. Yeah, if you follow Jesus, you're not going to be able to follow your heart. You're not going to be able to do what, you know, you're not going to be. I can remember I talked to a young man who, who he, that's really what he thought. He really thought that if he followed Jesus that he couldn't be a doctor because God was just going to call him to go do something else. And I was like, hey, God is so much more concerned about your heart than your profession. I promise. He's not looking to steal from you. He's looking to give you Life and life to the full, a better life than you could ever imagine, not just in things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about real life. My grandfather lived till, great-grandfather, my grandfather, great-grandfather, um, I knew him my whole life, and he actually met my daughter, so at one point, we had five generations on the earth. Isn't that beautiful? And so, um, and we have one picture of it, and I'm very proud of that picture. It's not a good picture, and my hair doesn't look okay, but I'll frame it anyway. So, there were five generations on the earth. He lived till he was 102, okay? That's a really long time to live. 
And um, he was a farmer and an oil man and just did all kinds of different things. I don't mean like he owned oil. I mean like he worked on oil. <laughs> just want to be real clear there. Um, but he was a farmer until he was 98. He had a garden. He, he raised uh, goats until he was 98, and they were all mean just like him. And um, towards the end of his life, I can remember it was like his last birthday. And we didn't know he was going to die because he literally just decided like three weeks before he died to die and laid down and didn't eat anymore and just died. Dead serious. He just got tired of living, Um, which is a crazy story in itself. Sorry, total aside, but somebody enjoyed that, so that's good. Um, But it it was towards his last birthday, and I was like, what do you get, right? Because, I mean, what do I get him? Because you can't take it with you. Do you hear what I'm saying, though? And so I got him this huge picture collage of all the people in his life. He loved it so much, man. He had it up on his, and he would, t- he would pull it out for all the visitors who would come to the house. Let me show you my wife. You see what I'm saying? When we try to hold on to it, But life is something that can't be squeezed to death. It can't be shoved into a safe. It can't be held onto that tightly. And if that's true in the natural, then how much more is it in the supernatural? But hear the words here, laying down your life. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. Think about this for just a moment ago. What did he say about his own life? He said, I lay down my life, what? To take it up again. I lay down my life, what? To take it up again. Baptism is literally us emulating what happened with Jesus. It's going, right? It's it's this beautiful rebirth, That's one of the meanings of baptism, but it's a beautiful rebirth. We're invited to participate with him. Communion, a reminder of all of the, why is that so important? Because there's a second step. It's not just about laying our life down, but this entire series is going to be about what it looks like to not just come to Jesus and die, but to get up, pick up his burden, and walk with him into a completely different life where we, along the journey, become a different person and discover what life is really all about. Fake life versus true life. So if we really want to live this eternal life, this abundant life here on earth, how do we do it? I mean, how do we make the exchange, right? Okay, so I'm supposed to put it down and then pick up the burden of the Lord. Okay, got it. How exactly does put, I mean, do you sign up for the burden? Does it come with Amazon? I don't know. Like, I'm happy to do that. How do I do that? How do we lay down our life and then have him give us a new life? How do we pick up our cross daily? And and these are are the things we're going to be talking about every single week during this series. These keys to living the abundant life. And I think these are the mistakes that people make, is they concentrate on the concept of what would Jesus do? 
Now, that's a beautiful question. But it's like, it's a question like at the very end because it's all based on your actions, right? And reactions to the world around you. So it, it, it's like, okay, well, what would destiny do in this situation? You're not me. You don't have my skill set and I don't have your skill set, right? You can't just say, oh, well, what would, okay, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say this. Or I'm going to, that, that doesn't work. You would have to learn how to what? Think like me. You'd have to learn how to, right? Do you see what I'm saying? If you want to do as I do, then you're going to have to get to know me. You're going to have to adopt. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Another mistake is people will take the other side of the, the thing and they'll say, I'm not Jesus. Right? I'm not Jesus. That's, you know, it's, it's nice about Jesus, but I'm not Jesus. I mean, he was the son of God. I mean, I know Jesus would forgive him, but I'm not Jesus, right? That's just an excuse. So Jesus invites you to follow him, and you're like, I, actually, I can't. I will, you know what? I'm just going to be satisfied with coming to see you and getting rest sometimes. I'm going to pass up that rest for my soul thing that I desperately need it to in the morning, that I desperately need in my battles. I'm, I'm just not going to do that. And, but our focus should be instead on what transforms us, abiding with him. John 15, 4 says this, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you can't be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who doesn't remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you want to rely, remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. I've loved you even as the Father has loved me, which still is just so astounding. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Oh, my gosh, right? And we miss the end of the story because we stop on the branches being burned part and get scared to death. And we're like, oh, my gosh, I'm not producing much fruit. I think he's going to burn me, right? And we stop, and we totally miss the point of this entire thing. It says, yes, your joy will overflow. When we just, when, when we remain in him, when we choose to be with him and to become like him. My, my grandmother and I, I tell a lot of family stories. Um, mainly because I don't have a lot of friends. No, I'm just joking. Anyway, that's a good joke, right? Thank you for laughing. I so appreciate you getting me. But anyway, my grandmother is is really wonderful. And so she told me this last week, which she is one of these women who's like a mountain of the faith. Okay, she was an organist in her home church from the age of 12. Then she married a traveling evangelist, pioneering all the way, built a church from 50 people to like 2,000 back in the day planted a Christian school, all, okay, 
But you know what I'm saying? And by the way, never took a salary for any of it. She just did it. And she's this unbelievable woman. I would think of anybody that she should be very confident that she's produced much fruit. I mean, right? She looks at me the other day. She goes, I was just really worried the other day. God, do I even really know you? And I just, I, I, have I ever really done anything for you? Have I, okay, which, can you imagine how I'm feeling listening to this? I'm like, whoa, there is no hope for destiny, right? And, and I'm listening, and, and she said this. She said, I felt like the Holy Spirit brought me to that verse about the vine and the branches. I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, and I thought to myself, well, he hasn't cut me off and burnt me off yet. I guess I'm okay. <laughs> hey, you know what? I love that perspective because sometimes we can let the fear of doing the wrong thing keep us from just connecting to Jesus and trusting because it says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what it says. So, so what's the only thing I can do? I can choose to be with him and learn to be like him. I want to read to you a little bit from this book, wrong book. I want to read to you just a little bit from this book before we close. We can become like Christ in character and in power and thus realize our highest ideals of well-being and well-doing. That is the heart of the New Testament message. Do you believe this is possible? My central claim is that we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. Now, I want you to think how different that is than just trying to figure out what Jesus would do in a particular situation. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. Okay. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities he engaged in, by arranging our whole lives around the activities he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of the Father. What activities did Jesus practice? Such things as solitude and silence, prayer, simple and sacrificial living, intense study and meditation upon God's word and God's ways, and service to others. Some of these will certainly be even more necessary to us than they were to him because of our greater or different need. But in a balanced life of such activities, we will be constantly enlivened by the kingdom not of this world. But history, hear me, keeps a heavy hand. I think this is so apropos for this moment. History keeps a heavy hand upon our present thoughts and feelings. Such a faith as just described is strongly opposed today by powerful tendencies around us. Faith today is treated as something that only should make us different, not that actually does or can make us different. In reality, we vainly struggle against the evils, of the, the evils of this world, waiting to die and go to heaven. Somehow we've gotten the idea that the essence 
of faith is entirely a mental and an inward thing. Now, no show of hands because we don't want to expose anyone as liars. But have you ever felt that way? I know it should make a difference, but I don't feel as transformed as I feel like I ought to be. Do do you see what I'm saying? I'm not sure that I really know what to do to see that transformation in my life. I know I'm supposed to abide in him, but other than just standing here kind of like humming, I'm not sure what that should look like. Maybe you have certain rhythms of your life. Maybe you've learned certain things from other people who've taught you, and that's a beautiful thing. But there is a big difference between trying to do as Jesus did and trying to live a whole life that's defined by his own rhythms and practices. I like the the definition in this book, the way that they explain it. I think it's absolutely beautiful because I don't know that I had ever put it in these words, but if you had somebody who was like really good at baseball in your family, we have a lot of baseball players in this church. I know because they're gone in the summer, but really good at baseball, right? Like they like love baseball. You wouldn't just buy them like the gear that the big baseball players do, right? Where? You wouldn't just go get them like a a nice bat and a glove and then send them to the game and say, hey, you've seen baseball games. Hit it like that big leaguer. Hit it. If you do that and that is you, just talk to us after we can help. That's dumb, right? You don't do that. You're just setting that person up for success. But can we be real? Sometimes we treat ourselves and other Christians that way. We're like, buy the Bible, do the thing, right? And and just keep showing up and and you're going to get it and it's going to be great. Oh, and when you run into a horrible situation with your family where you're going to have to forgive and turn the other cheek, just do it. Just do it. I mean, the Bible said how to do it. Just do it. And we're surprised when we utterly fail at the things that are hard for us, right? Because we all have different bents and different issues. Instead, what do we do to young athletes? We invite them into a complete lifestyle of becoming, right, someone who is great at that sport. Because for every athletic moment we see on the field, there are thousands of hours of practice, in the shadows. There are habits of eating and ways of sleeping and ways of doing and ways of of thinking. They have coaches for their mind and their body and everything else in between. It's a lifestyle. Celine Dion's one of my favorite singers. Um, anybody else really like her? Okay, thank you. I so appreciate you. All right, so Celine Dion, I mean, she's amazing. You know, one of the things that is so interesting is she will talk about young singers and she'll say, well, how have you been able to sing so long? Because I don't know if you noticed, but like singers' careers are often very short. And she said, because I was willing to do what other singers weren't willing to do. I was willing to have a lifestyle that kept my voice at peak, right? for much longer. And her warm-up routine before her concerts is legendary. 
Her daily practice schedule is legendary. What she eats and she won't eat is legendary. And this is the truth. If you want to sing like Celine Dion, yes, you do have to be blessed by God. But you also would have to enter a way of living your life that would be completely different than the way that you are living now. The way that I am living now. It's about becoming not just being a person who turns the other cheek, but becoming a person who in that situation would turn the other cheek. Do do you see what I mean? It's so crucial that we understand the difference. When we live as Christ, We are to live as he did all of his life, all of our life. And this, friends, is what elevates the mundane into the transcendent because it is the rhythm of life, the emphasis on the current minute that takes on extreme importance. I was reading a book called, oh, what was it called? It was like extreme something. Anyway, Philip made me read it, and because he gives me these books, and I actually read this one. It was something about excellence, and it's an absolutely brilliant book, and it's written by Ben Bergeron, who coached way too many people in the CrossFit Games. That's just what you need to know. There are a bunch of champions in the CrossFit Games, and he coached them, and this book is ridiculously good. But the thing that struck me about the book um, was the way that he talked about maximizing minutes, because it so resonated with me. He, he talked about how his athletes focus not on their two-hour, you know, I wanted to call it a rehearsal. That's not right. What would that be? A workout, right. I need to do that if I'm going to walk and, and become athletic. Anyway, so they would not practice on their two hours of working out, but they would, they would practice on each minute, maximizing each minute making each minute the most important minute. And he tells this story about one of his athletes in the games um, who, who, you know, right after she has won the CrossFit Games, which is a really big deal because those people are crazy. And so it's like a really, really big deal because you have done, you have done crazier things faster and stronger than all of the other crazy people. Okay, that's what it means. If you don't believe me, look up the CrossFit games. They like flip refrigerators. Who needs to do that? No one needs to do that. But anyway, so, so she's won the CrossFit games, and they go to dinner after, and he looks over, and without him even telling her, she's back on her eating regimen. She doesn't even know if she's ever going to compete again. But it wasn't about that. She was a champion. Do you, do you you see what I'm saying? That's just the way she had become. It wasn't about what happened in the games. It was about the transformation that had happened in her. Now, that is an athletic example. But I think that God gives us things in the natural for us to be able to see that will begin to speak truth to us in the supernatural, right? If we want to live like Jesus, guys, It's going to take living like him in all the different areas 
of our life. It's going to look like incorporating those practices. It's got to be more than just occasionally visiting him for a sip of water. We've got to see it as a complete lifestyle transformation. But this is the thing. Don't hear this as heavy because his yoke is easy and it's light. This isn't heavy. This isn't, oh gosh, look, Destiny's given me 50 more things to do. No, I'm talking about real rest here. I'm talking about the transformation that you, you want more than anything here. I'm talking about a completely different life here. I'm talking about finding real life, finding yourself finally coming alive, not having to go after something so that you'll feel something, but rather living every moment fully alive. No longer having to go after a career so that you can feel fulfilled, but understanding that you can be fulfilled after you retire, while you're working, while you're in a season of parenting or taking care of this or taking care of that, that that's not what defines you, that you're part of a bigger kingdom and a bigger mission. All I wanted to do tonight is just paint a picture for you of what we're going to be talking about. See, achievements, they dim in the light of his glory and grace on a daily basis. That's why people who literally shook the world like Mother Teresa, because she did. She changed the way we thought about so many things. That's why she is quoted as saying, Jesus walks among the pots and the pans. Why would a woman who sat with kings and prime ministers say such a thing? Because she understood that she was the same woman and that the moment of her solitude with the Lord in even that smallest of task was just as important as what the world saw as her biggest achievement. As we close, I want to read this one part that I think is, is really absolutely beautiful. It says this. It says, ironically, in our efforts to avoid the necessary pains of discipline, we miss the easy yoke and, like, and light burden. We then fall into the rending frustration of trying to do and be the Christian we know we ought to be without the necessary insight and strength that only discipline can provide. We become unbalanced and are unable to handle our lives. So those who say we cannot truly follow Christ turn out to be correct in a sense. We cannot behave on the spot as he did and taught if in the rest of our time we live as everybody else does. The on-the-spot episodes are not the place where we can, even by the grace of God, redirect unchristlike but ingrained tendencies of action towards sudden Christlikeness. Our efforts to take control at that moment fail so uniformly and so ingloriously that the whole project of following Christ will appear ridiculous to the watching world. We've all seen this happen. 
So we should be perfectly clear about one thing. Jesus never expected us simply to turn the other cheek, go the second mile, bless those who persecute us, give unto those who ask, and so forth. These responses generally and rightly understood to be characteristics of Christ-likeness were set forth, were set forth by him as illustrative of what might be expected, hear me, of a new kind of person. One who intelligently and steadfastly seeks above all else to live within the rule of God and be possessed by the kind of righteousness that God himself has. But what would we tell someone who aspired to live well in general? If we are wise, we would tell them to approach life with the same general strategy. If we wish to follow Christ and to walk in the easy yoke with him, we will have to accept his overall way of life as our way of life totally. Then and only then, we may reasonably accept, expect to know by experience how easy is the yoke and how light the burden. The secret of the easy yoke, then, is to learn from Christ how to live our total lives, how to invest all our time and energies of mind and body as he did. Don't we seek to just follow him fully? I don't know about you. I don't want to just have the right beliefs, and I don't want to just try on the spot to do the right thing. I want to be so transformed that Christ-likeness becomes a part of who I am. And that's what I'm so excited about on these Wednesday nights is we are going to dive into these keys to the abundant life, these spiritual disciplines. And I'm thrilled about it. Thrilled about it for many reasons. One of the reasons I'm thrilled about it is Pastor Alex is going to be preaching a lot of these. And Philip's going to be preaching a lot of these. And I'm going to be sitting and learning in a lot of these. <laughs> because I want to know more. I want to know more about what it looks like to bring solitude into my daily rhythm, into my weekly rhythm. I, I want to know more because there already is solitude, right? And how, how to make that. I want to know more. I want to know more. I don't think I've ever been this hungry in my life to be more and more transformed to be like him. Because why not? You know, it's no longer popular to be a Christian, so you may as well go all in. Just saying. I mean, if you're going to do this thing, like, you may as well go. Like, go for it. And what if? What if everything we talked about is true? What if the peace you've always been looking for what if the joy you've been looking for? What if the life that you are looking for? What if the abundant, what if it's really possible to live the kind of life that impacts the world? They're one of my favorite quotes is from a, a preacher. I think it was Jonathan Edwards. He said, um, the world has not yet seen what would happen if a man was fully dedicated to the purposes of the Lord. I think that's, you know, that always made me feel really bad. <laughs> but now I get it. Because he was a man who was truly dedicated to God. But the more 
that you pursue him, the more that you realize there is and the more you want. Can we just stand and we're going to pray and I'm going to dismiss you. Father, that's what we want. We want to know you more. Holy Spirit, open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our mind to understand all that you have for us. Don't let us miss even one moment of it. Continue to transform us. For those who have followed you for more decades than I've lived on this earth, continue to transform us. For those who just started following you today or last week, continue to transform us. Lord, we thank you that your invitation to take up your yoke isn't bounded by years, but rather it's open to everybody. So Lord, help us to be a people who pursue that kind of life, that kind of transformation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and share our podcast. For more content from NCC and how to get connected, visit ncc.team.